0: Weekend is taking a little break. So this week, the team has picked some of their favorite pieces from the last few months, just in case you missed them. Coming up, writer Tom Lamont sits down with beloved British writer, actor and comedian, Lenny Henry. Journalist Jess Cartner-Morley looks at whether we finally reached peak WhatsApp. And finally, columnist Zoe Williams asks,
1: That's 15% off at burrow.com slash acast.
0: Before we begin, just a warning there's a bit of bad language in this episode. Now, his partner tells him to be more choosy, but the multi talented Lenny Henry just can't help himself. The result, Tom Lamont discovers, is not just a brand new memoir a children's book, and breaking new ground in the world of fantasy, but finally opening up about a few home truths. Read
1: by William Van Der Lenny Henry's mum used to say to him, our lives are like gardens. Be careful what you plant in them, because everything needs tending. And I don't think I've planted my own garden very judiciously, Henry says when we meet for lunch on a mild September afternoon. It is three weeks to the day since he published a volume of his memoirs, Rising to the Surface. In another three, his children's novel, The Book of Legends, will appear in bookshops. Overnight, episodes of the new The Lord of the Rings TV show, The Rings of Power, will appear online. Henry has a small role as a hobbit. At home in Oxfordshire, he keeps a copy of the Soprano scripts on his bedside table to help him sharpen his show-running work on an imminent ITV drama about the Windrush generation. GQ magazine recently suggested that Henry was undergoing a renaissance. A renaissance they said. But honestly, all through his long career, Henry has flitted and filled his days like this. Gigging, writing, acting, campaigning, broadcasting studying. My partner, Lisa Makin, a theatre producer, thinks I've got to figure out a way to be more choosy, says Henry, who recently turned 64. She thinks I should do less, reap more. I just don't like ruling anything out. I run around my metaphorical garden saying, look at that big weed. (laughs) No need to deadhead anything here. Though Henry has patches of grey in his hair and beard, and walks with a slight stoop. He could pass without much difficulty for a 40-something. He arrives to meet me on the concrete concourse outside the British Library in London, wearing a blue Oswald Boating suit, a paisley shirt and purple Dr Martens. While lunching on a pastrami sandwich and a Coke, he is recognised by commuters, security guards and library visitors. He exchanges waves. Even from a distance, people seem to warm to that breathless exuberance that has been part of Henry's public persona for almost half a century. In conversation, he will frequently adopt voices or characters. Cheesy 80s disc jockey, gravelly American P.I., the Jamaican accents of his relatives, the brummy lilt of his hometown of Dudley, and sometimes these skits reveal something extra about how he feels. When I ask if I can push him further on this or that personal question, he becomes a Jamaican elder, leaning back and murmuring, ''Go ahead, go ahead,'' in a way that makes no promises. When I tell him that my nine-year-old daughter loved his book of legends so much that she stayed up for hours in bed with it, palely turning the pages long after she would normally have fallen asleep, Henry barks with pleasure. Perhaps to cover his pride... He segues straight into a character, pretending to be a Hollywood starlet, modestly accepting an award. Tell her thank you. Tell her thank you very much. The Book of Legends, a quest novel in the vein of Tolkien or C.S. Lewis, is his second children's book. His first, a superhero novel called The Boy With Wings, came out last year. Both focus on characters who are young and black. Henry wrote them to redress what he sees as an absence in children's literature. My daughter Billy arrived in 1991, and I remember when she was little. It was a sharp sting. There were hardly any books that spoke to her. Who she was? A baby of colour. When Billy was older, she and Henry read the Harry Potter books together. They enjoyed them, but there weren't many characters in whom she could see herself. There was the kid who did the commentary in the Quidditch matches. Dean, you know, the one who had the loudest voice. At the time, Henry was reminded of his own experiences as a preteen reader in Dudley, alternately omitted or belittled by the literature available to him. You know the first book a teacher ever recommended I should read? It wasn't The Three Musketeers. It wasn't A Tale of Two Cities. It was Little Black Sambo. Imagine. On trips to Dudley's public library, he remembers reading Urge's Tintin books, loving them, but feeling unnerved by them. All of a sudden, you'd been in the African jungle and people were wearing grass skirts and saying, "unga Boonga. You can't process something like that as a kid. You don't know you're being patronised. You just read it. You compartmentalise. You put it to one side of your brain so that you can enjoy the rest of the book as an artefact. At least since he was in his forties, Henry says he has meant to sit down and write a children's book for middle-grade readers that would be both a decent yarn and an invitation to the dance for a young and black audience. It took him decades to glue his ass to a seat, lots of goes and tries and attempts. He says he knows people get vexed about famous people writing children's books. I'm aware there's a sniffy attitude towards celebs writing this stuff. I read Tom Fletcher's books. I don't think about him as the guy from Busted or McFly or whatever. I think he writes funny. His are funny books. When he finally got up the momentum on his own fiction, Henry says he wrote everywhere. At the kitchen table, on set, in the Groucho Club. He devised The Boy With Wings as a superhero story because when I was young, there weren't any who looked like me. The Book of Legends became a quest novel because he does the voice of a funk DJ. You never see no brothers on a quest. Advanced copies of that book come with a letter from Henry, explaining his history as a fan of Tolkien's Middle Earth and Lewis's Narnia. Both were thrilling sagas. Both were white sagas. By adding to the contemporary work of authors such as Mallory Blackman, Nadia Shireen and Nathan Bryan, Henry says he's loving being part of an upflowering of minority children's writing. You walk past a bookshop window and think, it might not have happened yet, but it's happening. We're at the beginnings of something. He tells a story about doing an acting job on a Netflix fantasy series called The Witcher, his co star in that show, Amy Murray, is deaf. And when they were hanging out between takes, Henry mentioned that one of the main characters in his new book was deaf. Murray started to cry, Henry says, and he understood why. Readers don't forget that feeling of being made invisible. Recently, with the broadcast of The Rings of Power, There has been some bleak and predictable criticism about the casting of actors who look like Henry as hobbits, elves, dwarves and such. To borrow from Henry, imagine! This guy who once read Tolkien's Middle-earth books and wondered where all the non-white characters were now finds himself having to answer for the fact that the characters in a 2022 adaptation aren't all white. Henry rolls his eyes. The world has changed, he says. It needs to change more. But some people don't like any degree of change. They're stuck in their ways. They're sat in their pants eating hobnobs and looking at their computers, slagging off anything different. Broadening representation on a programme that will be seen by millions is the right thing to do. It's the brave thing to do the next generation of showrunners will look back and ask, whatever took us so long? Henry says he gets that these changes might take a minute's adjustment, at least for fantasy obsessives who've pored over certain texts for most of their lives. He's a fantasy obsessive himself. As well as Tolkien and Lewis, he grew up adoring the comic book creations of Alan Moore. As a reader of Neil Gaiman's Sandman comics, Henry was accustomed to seeing the central character of Death as she appeared on the page. A white woman, originally inspired by the goth fashion designer Cinnamon Hadley. In a Netflix adaptation of Sandman that debuted this year, Death is played by a British woman of colour, Kirby Howe Baptiste. Henry says, ''I've read all Neil's comics.'' I was used to seeing death in a particular way. After one episode of Kirby, who nailed that part, I can't imagine it any other way. Something about this phase of our conversation puts him in mind of his bedside table at home in Oxfordshire. That pile of books on the go that includes David Chase's Soprano script, a memoir about the making of Apocalypse Now, and a copy of Harper Lee's To Kill a Mockingbird. He mentions this to explain that although he can brush off the silly, trollish criticism directed at his screen presence in Middle Earth, he is far from immune to hurt on these subjects. I was rereading To Kill a Mockingbird, which I hadn't dipped into since I was in my twenties. I'd forgotten something about the language in that book. The moment Lee first uses the N-word, it was like somebody had punched me in the heart. He thought he knew the book pretty well. He thought he was more robust at 64. But that kind of thing, it can catch you by surprise. It can really knock you off your horse. And I must admit, I stopped reading. I haven't been able to pick it up again since. How strange, right? That I should be so thin-skinned. There are two versions of his early life biography, the partially true one that Henry cobbled together mid-career and the more honest backstory that he finally feels free to talk about from the distance of his 60s. His appearance on Desert Island Discs in 1989 is a fascinating document that makes for uncomfortable listening now. Henry was 30 when he was quizzed by the then host Sue Lawley. Too young, he wonders? In the show, He talks about his mum Winifred and his dad Winston coming from Jamaica to the Midlands in the 1950s to take work in factories. Henry was born in 1958. He grew up to be a teenager with a knack for doing impressions. He appeared on national TV at 16 in a talent contest called New Faces before moving on to a sitcom about a black British family called the Fosters. Then touring with a light entertainment troupe called The Black and White Minstrel Show, through the summers of the late 70s. Interesting, Henry told Lawley, of his five years as a minstrel. Nice people. Or so went the glossed-over version of his biography that Henry gave out in 1989. While studying for a BA, MA, then a PhD in Film and TV Studies during the 2000s and 2010s, Henry did a lot of inner wrestling with his formative experiences in British show business. By the time he published his doctorate in 2018, he was ready to say the Foster's lack of cultural veracity, inconsistent dialects, clothes, politics, etc., was preposterous. The all-white production team had no idea how to cast a Caribbean-London family and so procured black performers from all corners of the globe. As for his interesting experience as part of the Black and White Minstrel Show, Henry wrote, I was miserable the entire period. In his recent memoir, Rising to the Surface, he goes further, admitting the experience left him with everlasting shame, smothered in a duvet of depression. I ask Henry what changed, why he has felt able to be honest about this. He says, there's a thing about getting to a certain age and lancing a boil. The same principle applied to the story of his parentage. As recently as 2015, when Henry wrote and produced a movie called Danny and the Human Zoo that drew from events of his own teenage years, he couldn't bring himself to talk in public about the true circumstances of his birth. Apart from close family, nobody knew. Then, in 2019... Henry decided to lance another boil. His named father, Winston Henry, wasn't his biological father. In fact, Henry was born to Winifred and another man, Albert Green, whom she'd met in the Midlands in the 1950s, before Winston travelled over to join her from Jamaica. When Henry wrote this up in a first volume of memoir, 2019's Who Am I Again?, It was like ripping off a plaster, he says. I felt like I was being truthful about myself for the first time, where before I'd had to be economical. And now I can talk about my birth father without feeling like he does an impression of a tortured superhero in pain. He grits his teeth and groans. Then he drops the performance, Lenny again, and says, They're all dead now. I can't hurt them. We talk about what a tricky thing it is, writing from life. Whether this is done in the form of autobiography or as art that's mined from real events. You have to be so, so careful, he says. There will be things that your relatives recognise. Len put that in? But at the same time, you have to try to write from your truth. For 25 years, from the mid-80s until 2010, Henry was married to the British comedian Dawn French. Their daughter, Billy Henry, was adopted as a newborn in the 1990s. The first half of the Henry-French marriage coincided with some explosive years in both their careers. By his own admission, Henry allowed his schedule to become hyperkinetic. He was part of the original comic relief cast, instrumental in its transfer from a one-off stage show that made £1 million for charity to a TV special that rakes in millions each year. He had earned his professional spurs in children's TV and an evening sketch show. Later, he got his own vehicle, The Lenny Henry Show. He formed a production company and made the well-liked 90s sitcom, Chef. There were films and comedy tours. In Rising to the Surface, which tracks the story of his life up to the turn of the millennium, Henry acknowledges he sometimes let the starrier side of his life take over. On his 1984 wedding to French, he writes of rising to make his speech, and suddenly regretting inviting industry people. Why did I invite all these people off the telly? Why is the woman from Heidi High at my wedding? All through the 90s, he recalls, I had something to prove, and I threw myself into the work, even though... With a young child around, I could have slowed down a little and helped out a bit more. When Winifred became gravely ill in 1998, Henry decided to go off on an arranged tour of Australia. She died while he was gone, and in his memoirs he wonders what that was about. Why couldn't I just be at Mum's side? I still don't know and still question my behaviour at that time. He describes what sound like the beginnings of the end of his marriage to French. My selfish need to succeed through constant working was taking its toll on my family life. I made some bad decisions. Towards the end of Rising to the Surface, which breaks off before his turn to academia, theatre acting and novel writing, Henry considers Winifred's advice about life being a garden needing tending. He concludes with melancholy frankness that working within the entertainment industry can make you the most neglectful gardener on earth. Henry has finished his lunch. He's about to drive away from the British Library in a taxi that will take this knight of the realm, he became Sir Lenny in 2015, to an afternoon engagement. We're using the time we have left to talk about a shared love of comic book films. Henry is telling a funny story about the difference between watching the Marvel movie Black Panther in a London cinema, full of delighted black teenagers, and the same movie, again, with his daughter, in a rural cinema in Plymouth. No other black people in the room. And everyone saying, Well, that was all right, I suppose. But you can't see what all the fuss was about. While his current job on The Rings of Power is probably the most prominent acting role he's had, Makin helped him shoot his audition footage on their iPad. You get the sense that prose writing has become Henry's primary passion. It's writer to writer that I want to take him to task on one aspect of his recent memoir, Rising to the Surface. The last 70 or so pages are compelling because they detail Henry's mounting obsession with public recognition, meanwhile tracking his neglect of obligations at home. In the penultimate chapter, he appears to realise that what really mattered all along was the personal, not the professional. Moving stuff. But then, in a chapter paying off that notion of Henry rising to the surface, he describes winning a major industry award for one of his 2000s TV shows. The chapter comes with a photo of him holding a Golden Rose of Montreux Entertainment Award and the words... What surfacing looks like? For the reader, it's an unsettling swerve, I say. It seems to undercut his epiphanies in the previous chapters about the relative value of private and public validation. Henry politely disagrees. An award is not a small thing for a black creator. Awards are a litmus test for what's happening, for what's in the air. Which talents are being elevated, what shows are being lionised, what films are being slept on? You see awards and you can think, this is where we are at the moment. When he was a boy, he continues, he was given the same piece of advice by his mum that a lot of black parents gave to children. You've got to be two, three times as good as a white counterpart to be accepted as equal. You can't just be pretty good at a job, you've got to be brilliant, otherwise you're fucked. There's no permission to fail, not if you're from a minority. So yeah, winning the Golden Rose felt to him a worthy place to end a book of reminiscences. But he acknowledges that over his decades in the public eye, he may have developed some skewed notions about validation. He says that one acquaintance who read Rising to the Surface reported back that it contained too much whinging. You've had a decent career, the acquaintance told him. You seem successful to me. Henry touches his head and says, But from in here, it's felt like a treadmill. It's felt like I could have made better choices. There's been self-doubt. There's been imposter syndrome. There's been deflation. He performs the act of deflation, swelling up like a balloon, letting the air out with a loud raspberry that turns heads. He has his golden rose. He has his knighthood. A few years back, he was made Chancellor of Birmingham City University. I ask, what validation is left to him? What would it even look like? Henry turns over a few answers in his whirring brain perhaps trying to decide whether to take the question seriously or to treat it as a joke. He settles on something in between. I want a special medal, he decides. It wouldn't be a gold one, not a silver one. What comes after bronze? Pewter. I want a pewter medal. And I want it to be engraved with the words He fell over in the race, but he participated.
0: That was Lenny Henry. There's a thing about getting to a certain age and lancing a boil by Tom Lamont. Read by William Vanderpoo. We'll be back after this short break.
2: Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything
0: going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices down so to help us we brought in a reverse auctioneer which is apparently a
1: thing mint mobile unlimited premium wireless ready to get 30 30 get 30 get 20 20 20 get 20 20 get 15 15 15 15 just 15 bucks a month so
0: give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch
2: 45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees promote for new customers for limited time unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month slows full terms at mintmobile.com
1: finding your perfect home was hard but thanks to burrow furnishing it has never been easier
0: Welcome back to Weekend. Next. From pictures of puppies to deadly political maneuvers, WhatsApp is the world's most popular messaging platform. With its ability to democratize friendships and retain connections far and wide, the free service continues to bring joy to many people. But the way we use the service is evolving and increasingly infiltrating our lives. Is it starting to lose its appeal? Jess Cartner-Morley investigates. Read by Daniela Isaacs.
2: Every morning before she leaves for work, Rosie, a 28-year-old physiotherapist, chats with her three housemates. Sometimes they commiserate or celebrate over the weather or football results. Sometimes one of them has good news about a job interview to share or lets off steam about their latest dating app disaster. The friends moved out of the house they shared in Bristol last summer when they left college and they live in different towns now. But their WhatsApp group, named after the road they lived on together, starts pinging with messages around 7.30am most days. I live on my own now and I miss having company, says Rosie. Some of the others have moved back in with their parents, which has its own challenges. We make each other laugh and keep each other sane. We don't get to meet up much, but the group chat has kept our little gang alive. The first of my WhatsApp group chats to light up today was my Wordle one. Every Wordle group chat has one member who gets it in three lines before anyone else has both eyes open, right? Next was the group I have with some of my oldest, best friends, which is the sort of group chat where jokes that make no sense to anyone else make me snort with laughter. Then there was an emoji-laden update on a group set up for a snazzy upcoming birthday party and, for balance, an update, with photos, from a neighbour about the snail problem in her garden, as well as individual voice notes which had arrived while I was sleeping from my son and my cousin in Thailand and South Africa, respectively. My email inbox is just work and spam and newsletters I can't figure out how to unsubscribe from, says my friend Simon. My Instagram feed is gorgeous to look at, but it's just entertainment to be scrolled with a pinch of salt. WhatsApp is the bit on my phone where my real life happens. With 2 billion users, WhatsApp is the most popular messaging platform in the world, ahead of Facebook Messenger, 988 million, and WeChat, 1.2 billion. Launched by Yahoo alumni Brian Acton and Jan Coombe in 2009 and bought by Facebook five years later – WhatsApp has infiltrated our lives at every level, from international politics, Boris Johnson was widely reported to have exchanged private messages with Saudi Crown Prince Mohammed bin Salman, to the politics of the school gate. In Bond Street's fashion flagships, sales assistants who once waited for big spenders to walk through the doors now WhatsApp photos of the hottest new deliveries to favoured customers as soon as they land in the store. Often, the sale has gone through and the package dispatched by courier without the clothes ever hitting the shop floor. But have we reached peak WhatsApp? Lockdown was the platform's age of innocence, with neighbourhood group chats pinging with pithy one-liners and a never-ending stream of cat videos keeping morale high between isolated work-from-home colleagues. As the honeymoon period wears off, WhatsApp is starting to feel like yet another work stream, on top of all those unanswered emails and voicemails you never get around to listen to. The blue tick system that shows whether a message has been read by the recipient, which seems so useful at first, has become a social etiquette minefield. The modern WhatsApp user has more correspondence to deal with than a Bridgerton sister after the Queen's Ball. This year has also shown WhatsApp in a seedier light, under high court scrutiny over a lost password at the Wagatha Christie trial, and with a cameo role in the downfall of a prime minister, as messages revealed what Johnson did in fact know about Chris Pincher. Meanwhile, the recent introduction of a new stealth mode, allowing users to hide their online or last-seen status from specific contacts, suggests the beginning of WhatsApp fatigue. Another promised update will allow users to exit a group silently with only the administrators notified of their departure. Text messaging used to be a blunt back-and-forth exchange, a little like communicating by leaving notes on the fridge. By folding photos, videos and other people seamlessly into the exchange, WhatsApp chats have evolved to better mimic real-life conversation. Add a emoji for a facial expression, a gif for a laugh, The assumption that face-to-face communication is irreplaceable, already eroded by the smartphone era, has been further challenged by the enforced isolation of lockdowns and the long tail of work from home that has followed. There is no conversation so important or so delicate it can't be conducted over text these days. Jill Biden recently revealed that she and her husband conduct arguments over text to avoid being overheard by the ever-present security detail but it is the group chat functionality that has embedded itself in our everyday lives. The beauty of a group chat is not just its ability to keep a connection alive regardless of geography and time zone, but in democratising the friendship group, says journalist Scarlett Conlon, who is upward of a dozen groups active at any one time, and others archived but ready to jump back into life. Who Will Win Strictly, for instance, is dormant for nine months of each year, but on fire during the autumn. I still chat to lots of people one-on-one as well, says Conlon, but group chats are more inclusive of people who historically might have got information second-hand because staying in touch maybe isn't their strong point or it's not their thing to text a lot. People who struggle to find an in can send a one-line update or gift to a group and it keeps them in the loop. I think what WhatsApp does for group friendships is brilliant, agrees my sister Alice. I don't know how many group chats she's on, but she's in five different groups that I am also in, as well as our one-on-one chats. so I'm guessing quite a few. It shifts the centre of gravity away from multiple individual friendships, which inevitably ebb and flow, and puts it in the middle of the group, where it is accessible to everyone. The group becomes more bonded and more balanced, because no one is taking on all the emotional labour of arrangements, and no one is getting left out. Not everyone likes the background hum of cat videos, petition links and who had what for lunch. My technophobe father abruptly left the family group one day, not realising the group would be notified, exclaiming to my mother that he didn't want to read about everyone's sausages, says Joseph Kocharian, fashion director of Attitude magazine. My brother stays out of the chat too and lets the matriarchs of the family and myself, the gay son, run riot. Star turns on the chat include Kocharian's aunt, whose commentary on a pilgrimage to Lindisfarne read like an Alan Bennett story, and his late grandmother, who posted red and black hearts in keeping with her Cruella de Vil aesthetic of monochrome animal print and Chanel. She was strengthening her brand image on WhatsApp. Neighbourhood WhatsApp groups that sprang up during lockdown have evolved to reflect shifts in mood and priorities. Where I live, there are weeks when they are set by the national news agenda, a community hive mind getting together to navigate the visa system for Ukrainian refugees, moments when local issues dominate, anyone know if the pizza place is closing for good, and slow news days when a lost tortoise gets top billing. The chat that can tip even tolerant users over the edge is the Hen night one, which operates on an emotional volume set to ear-splitting for months, full of granular organisational details. My friend Violet is on one of these, with men and women I've never met updating me on childcare arrangements. That is your stuff. Everyone has enough of their own stuff. 30 people don't need to know your logistics. But WhatsApp is not just for friends and family. In Westminster, it rules. I couldn't do my job without WhatsApp, says Jessica Elgott, the Guardian's chief political correspondent. There is no way you could operate as a political journalist without it. Number 10 uses the platform to send out statements, party communications go through broadcast groups, and there is a huge press gallery group. Alliances between the modern intake of Tory MPs are now defined by who they're in a WhatsApp group with, rather than which club they belong to. In WhatsApp, Westminster has found a platform that turbocharges its favourite sport, gossip. This is dangerous. MPs can be caught off guard by the sotto voce feel of a message tapped onto a tiny green box, mistaking it for genuine privacy. What's surprising is how indiscreet even experienced politicians can be, says Elgott. It gives you a sense of being among friends, but a big WhatsApp group isn't like that. Last year, screen grabs emerged showing Nadine Dorries being removed from a hundred-strong group of Tory MPs over her fangirling of Boris Johnson. Steve Baker, former chair of the European Research Group, removed her with the comment, enough is enough. WhatsApp is trialling an edit button which will allow for more subtle redactions than the, this message has been deleted function. The future of WhatsApp is still uncertain. Anyone remember how crazy we were for house party back in April 2020? In the UK, it is used by 75% of the population aged from 16 to 64. But take up in the US, where SMS is still dominant, is only 23%. All over the world, it is less popular with teenagers than with older age groups. Younger people already use the private story settings to create their own friendship group chats on Instagram and other platforms, rather than using those platforms to broadcast to everyone who follows them. And outside the worlds of politics and flagship fashion stores, WhatsApp has yet to be integrated into our ordinary work lives. My unscientific straw polling concluded that while most of us appreciate the -the off-the-record vibe of an unofficial team group chat with in-jokes and puppy photos, we draw the line at getting messaged by the boss. It feels like an invasion of what is supposed to be a safe space, as my friend Isabel puts it. While it would not be accurate to say that WhatsApp retains an air of innocence, it is implicated in too many Westminster plots for that to be true. It does have, still, a kind of youthful energy which other social platforms lack, having been either flatlined by marketing, Instagram, or bulldozed into party lines, Twitter. WhatsApp still feels like a connection, not a work stream. This has not escaped the notice of major brands. Most of us have got wise to the reality that storytelling is just a pretty word for being told why we should buy something. Next, surely, we need to steel ourselves against brands leveraging of the conversational back and forth format of WhatsApp into a business opportunity. Facebook, now Meta, the owner of WhatsApp since 2014, has so far honoured the wishes of the platform's founders to keep it free of advertisements. But many analysts believe that one of the drivers of the acquisition of WhatsApp was that it supplied Meta with the one piece of the contact puzzle that eluded it, personal mobile phone numbers, in which case monetisation of this data may be on the horizon. But for now, WhatsApp is where we go for a chat. When I'm walking home from work, I could look at the news on my phone or check my step count or update my to-do list, says Rosie, but I would much rather message my friends and find out what everyone's cooking for dinner.
0: That was WhatsApp took over our phones, but did it have to take over lives? By Jess Morley, Read by Daniela Isaacs. Finally. Increasing numbers of people in Britain are using the popular injectable cosmetic, Botox, and they're happy to admit it. But what does it feel like to freeze your forehead? Does anyone notice? And can it change how you feel about yourself? Columnist Zoe Williams goes above and beyond to get us some answers. Read by Sophie Marcel.
3: Although botulinum toxin A was first approved in the US in 1989 for the treatment of eye muscle disorders, Botox wasn't Hollywood approved to address the ravages of time until around the mid-90s. It was frowned on initially, though naturally not by the celebrities who'd had it, as they could no longer frown. Directors will complain that actors couldn't properly emote having disabled half their muscles. It's a risk, Dr Miriam Adabib says, as she hovers with a needle over my forehead, ready to give me my first jab, at Victor and Garth, the East London clinic she co-founded with Dr Lauren Hamilton. If it goes a little bit too far, you start to have a slightly dead look. You smile and there's a lack of warmth that goes with that. Your facial expressions are not matching how you feel. I have no personal anxiety at all. Adabib is a surgeon who left the NHS exhausted by the pandemic and its aftermath. I've never had so much anatomical expertise pointed squarely at my face. By the noughties, the aesthetic treatment was widely available to the general population. Dentists could administer it after a day-long course, though it wouldn't be until 2018 that Superdrug would start offering it. Consumer forecasters were anticipating a million strong market by 2020, which turned out to be pretty close. By 2021, the estimate was that 900,000 injections were carried out a year in Britain, though some of those will be to the same people. Nevertheless, it was viewed with suspicion that was twofold. One, that it was a self-indulgent vanity. Two, that it looked very unnatural particularly if used repeatedly over time. Whenever a star appeared shiny in a photo, she was considered a Botox tragedy, even though, looking back, she might just have been sweating. None of these preconceptions were necessarily wrong. It is quite a lot of money to spend on your face if you're just a regular citizen whose face isn't their passport. Injections in one or two areas will cost between £200 and £300 pounds now, but regulation in the sector is sparse, so it could easily have cost you the same or more 10 years ago. I spoke to one woman, Jay, who was charged £260 pounds for two injections in 2010 when she had just turned 30. Over time, treatments got more refined, price stabilised and attitudes changed. Emma, 51, had her first treatment at 45. I was becoming quite aware of ageing, she says. I went under the radar and didn't really tell people. But if someone asked me directly, I wouldn't lie. I wouldn't say, no, no, I just drink a lot of water. She has noticed two changes over these six years. First, practitioners have refined the dose, so you don't feel as if you have a really heavy frozen forehead afterwards. Second, everyone is having it. It's really standard in the UK. Once you've had it done, you can identify it in others. If I see a woman my age with very dewy looking skin, she's had work. In reality, a 50-year-old woman that doesn't look tired has had something dumb. Adverse effects were rare, to judge from the reported incidents. 188 adverse reactions reported to regulators over 29 years. Although a study last year concluded that there were many more incidents of bruising, headaches and temporary muscle freeze that went unreported. The American model Chrissy Teigen distilled the spirit of the 2010s when she said, everything about me is fake, apart from my cheeks. Fake, fake, fake. It's the spirit of the digital native, really. Let's just stop pretending that these faces, these bodies, these lives we're showing each other are real. We all know what goes into them. Lindsay Stark, age 46, was botox curious but still had last century's preconceptions. I thought it was reserved for the glamorous and I suppose I had a vision of frozen celebrities who'd ended up looking really abnormal. At 41, she mentioned to a friend she was thinking about it, and she said, "Oh, I've been having it done for ages." Stark didn't tell her partner, and he didn't notice. And then after a few times, she did tell him, and now he does notice. Or maybe he just says that. The more recent trend, though, is for baby Botox, or preventive, or barely there. Subtle injections for the under-35s that stop the rot before it starts. So along with old-timers coming round to the idea of Botox and sloughing off its taboo, it is no wonder the market is booming. Botox, along with dermal fillers, now accounts for 9 out of 10 cosmetic procedures. Chloe MacDonald, The Guardian's deputy fashion and lifestyle editor, breaks it down into three main groups. First, women in their mid 40s to mid 50s catching up with the advances that have made Botox more subtle and less celeb. Second, women in their 30s being a lot more open in general and also a lot more into luxury high-tech treatments. Everyone uses retinol, LED face masks, injectables, -injectables, non-injectables, microneedling. And finally, women in their 20s having Botox in this age prevention spirit, their attitude to injectables and fillers fueled to an extent by the Love Island vibe which is socially frank, they'll tend not to hide any work, and aesthetically fake. The big lips, the plump cheeks, the no expression. How on earth could Botox prevent wrinkles in the future, though, when the injections themselves last only three months? And before we answer that, which we can, by the way, does it really make any difference Adebe asked me at the start what my current skincare routine was and I replied, I wash my face. With anything? A flannel. No moisturiser, no sunscreen, no soap, no serum, no unguents of any kind. Call me the radical control experiment and not in the sense of, does anything make any difference? We can answer that really easily. My sister uses everything under the sun. And she looks younger than me, even though she's older, a fact of which I like to make constant public record. What I mean is I don't really mind where I get injected and I'm not overly invested in whether or not at 49 I'm too far gone for it to work. The most common three areas for Botox are the frown lines, the forehead creases and the crow's feet. Some lines I want to keep. I earned those deep creases with my hard thoughts. Not all of the results, Adabib says, will be obvious. The little trio of muscles responsible for bringing the eyebrows in and down when you relieve them of their duties, it causes the inside of the eyebrows to slightly elevate. So you don't necessarily get rid of your frown lines. You just look fresher, like you've had a super good night's sleep. The way it works, she says, I can't recommend enough getting this done by a doctor, they're so plausible, is that it's injected into certain muscle groups and it stays in that area for just three days, during which it disrupts the receptor where the nerve comes to speak to the muscle. Over the following two weeks, you will find it harder and harder to make that expression. By two weeks, you've got your full response. On day 10, something weird happened. I just dropped off the kids and was pulling out of my ex husband's crescent, which is always a nightmare. People don't let you out because it's covered in signs saying private road and they think, screw you, rich person. But a grey van actually reversed a bit on an A road to beckon me out. And this happened again and again. Other drivers were nicer. Someone picked something up for me in Tesco. Someone else made a friendly remark about my trainers, and I swear to God, it's not because I look younger, it's because I'm not scowling. And this is an effect that can be seen through two windscreens. I didn't speak to a single person who didn't think Botox had made them look less forbidding. I'd catch myself when I was driving, Stark says, in the rear view mirror and think, why am I frowning? I'd be sitting at traffic lights trying to stretch out my forehead with my fingers. This year, researchers at the University of California, San Diego, released a study showing anxiety levels were between 20% and 70% lower in people who have had Botox, within the three months that it's effective. It feels slightly iffy because of that range. 20 to 70 is quite the tolerance band. But the data set was big more than 40,000, and the proposition itself is credible. If the face you see in the mirror or reflected in a shop window is agreeable and not dissatisfied, it could plausibly make you less self-critical in minute increments many times a day. Dr. Michael Riley, a facial plastic and reconstructive surgeon at MedStar Georgetown University Hospital in Washington, D.C., recently posited a more physiological effect. When you can't furrow your brow or show the emotions of concern or fear or panic, there is likely a calming effect on the nerve pathways that feed back to your brain that then allow you to actually not feel that emotion quite as much. I now genuinely can't frown. All I can do is kind of Wiggle my eyebrows like a children's entertainer. By day 12, I was spending time with a work experience kid, and she said my forehead looked like an egg. Because she still has a full range of facial expression, I saw a trace of anxiety cross her face. A beautiful egg, she amended. This interrupts the common narrative around beauty procedures. But they prey on people's insecurities while simultaneously jacking up the grooming standards that make people feel insecure in the first place. In 2019, the Joint Council for Cosmetic Practitioners instructed its members to check before they administered Botox that their patients weren't seeking it for reasons of poor mental health. I found that out after I had it, so when Adabib asked... Are you anxious or depressed? Do you currently hate yourself? I was incredibly surprised. In a salon that smelled like berries with this elegant, lineless expert, a really fun photographer and her beefy assistant, I was having the time of my life. I thought that was obvious. As with anything that may enhance or deplete your mental health, depending on the study, MDMA, marriage it's the young that people worry about. I'm a bit agnostic about that, since the construction of youth as a state of vulnerability in and of itself is fundamentally bogus. The much more pressing question is, does Botox do anything for the under 35s? Because if not, then baby Botox is just a rip-off. It helps if we understand how it works. All Botox does is prevent the degradation of your natural collagen, Adabib says. Because you're relaxing the muscles that are constantly pulling on the skin, each time the muscle pulls on the skin, the elasticity decreases. It's crunching down on the collagen over and over, and that's degrading your collagen. The wrinkle is just a symptom of the depleted collagen, not the cause so you don't have to wait for it to appear indeed it's probably better to preempt it sidebar here there's no point having only botox there are several ingredients that are shown in studies to change your skin at a cellular level adabib says vitamins a c and e at a minimum vitamin b is very important vitamin d is also quite important topically, not just from diet. But your diet should also be strong on all the vegetables of the rainbow, she adds, and maybe don't smoke or drink so much. The new celebrity trend, meanwhile, is Botox everywhere. In your hands, in your knees. There are so many areas that are just dead giveaways for ageing. I asked Adabib whether she had ever injected anywhere except the face and she said only as a surgeon, in the anus. And I started laughing, and she, because she's a doctor and not some kind of half-wit, did not laugh at the word anus and continued. It's very hard to heal a wound around the sphincter because the muscles are so tight. By now, I was really laughing hard, and the fact that she still wasn't laughing and would never laugh just made it worse. And I momentarily started panicking that I was never going to stop laughing. Not to worry, said a voice inside, you won't get any laughter lines. The anti-anxiety effect had already begun.
0: That was Why Has Britain Fallen In Love With Botox? There Is Only One Way To Find Out by Zoe Williams Read by Sophie Mercel. Before you go, we wanted to let you know about The Guardian and Observer's 2022 charity appeal. If you had to pick between heating and eating, which would you choose? As the cost of living crisis pushes 14.5 million people below the UK poverty line, more families than ever are facing a bleak Christmas. Please join us as we raise funds for charities working on the front line. All donations will go to Citizens Advice and Locality to help support local grassroots projects, which aim to support those who have been hit the hardest. You can find the link to donate on the Weekend episode page at theguardian.com. That's all from us. This has been Weekend, a Guardian podcast. This week's best of articles were read by William Van Der Poil, Daniela Isaacs and Sophie Marcel, and presented by me, Savannah De Greaves. This episode was produced by Rachel Porter. Original music by Axel Cacoutier. The executive producer was Danielle Stevens. Join us again next Saturday. Thanks for listening. This is The Guardian.
1: Tired of ads barging into your favorite news podcasts? Good news. Ad-free listening is available on Amazon Music for all the music plus top podcasts included with your Prime membership.